Well, there goes Thanksgiving last week, and there goes November in a couple of days. Here comes December, and before you know it, here comes 2024. Let's introduce episode 132 of The Far Middle to settle your mind and soul with rational thought and talk and to help manage that irrational world of fast-moving change that can be dizzying and that can shake up one's internal equilibrium. Yeah, sort of like that idea of what the far middle brings to the table. And for our dedication this week, I want to tie in a couple of areas of personal interest. One being sports, of course, but the others being history and architecture and that indelible quality of what makes a timeless classic. All those areas of interest converge to a place that some considered more cathedral than sports venue, especially our French-speaking friends living in our neighbor to the north, which is Canada, of course, and in the province known as Quebec. That place was opened on this date, November 29th, back in 1924, in Montreal, and it was repurposed to what today I believe is a giant cineplex, an office complex. I speak of the decades-long, 70 years total, home of the Montreal Canadiens and the NHL, the Montreal Forum, one of the most iconic sports venues in the history of sport itself. Now, building things back then, it was a bit different than what you see today, and the facts and figures explain it, I think, perfectly. The Forum was constructed in 159 days. Can you believe that? It would take longer today to draft the permit request for such a venue, and the actual permit review and approval process might not take 159 days but instead 159 months. For anyone who argues government regulation is not cumulatively onerous these days, tell them how it took less than six months to build a sports shrine that lasted 70 plus years back in 1924 and ask why it would take years today. Now, originally the plan was to build a 12,500 seat capacity rink. Those plans were scaled back for financial reasons to 9,300 seats The location on St. Catherine Street was hallowed ground before the forum rose out of the ground. It originally, at site, was a roller skating rink named the forum, and that name basically stuck and was kept. And get this, the site had previously been an outdoor ice hockey rink used by professional hockey founding fathers Frank and Lester Patrick, Art Ross, and Hall of Famer Russell Bowie when they were kids. Like I said, the forum site was always hallowed hockey ground. The forum cost one and a half million Canadian dollars to build back in 1924, which is about 25 million Canadian in today's dollars. Back to onerous regulation. Think about what it would cost to build today. Yikes. It underwent two renovations at the end of the 1940s and in 1968. And that seating capacity, it grew over the years. And with those renovations from 9,300 to just shy of 18,000 when it closed in the mid 1990s. 15 Stanley Cup championships were clinched or presented on its ice, um, 12 for the Canadians and one for the old Maroons, for whom the arena was originally built in the 1920s. And only two visiting teams won the Cup at the Forum, the Rangers and the Calgary Flames. In the last game in 1996, there was a ceremony with all the great Canadians appearing. Maurice Richard, the Canadians' most beloved player of all time, received a 16-minute standing ovation from the crowd as he broke down into tears. The forum hosted events during the 1976 Summer Olympics, one of which was gymnastics Nadia Comaneci's favorite Perfect 10, the first in Olympic history. The Beatles played the forum, and in 1981, one of my top bands of all time, Canadian band Rush, filmed and recorded almost all of their 1981 concert film and album, Exit Stage Left. 
what an album, and more on that later. Today, the forum as a mixed-use facility is struggling, I'm sorry to report, dealing with the same issues at many large cities these days, no workers, retailers going out of business, and dead zones of activity. But we'll always think of the forum as Canada's most famous sports venue, and apologies to Maple Leafs fans and Maple Leaf Gardens. So we proudly dedicate episode 132 to the Montreal Forum, and to remember when things got built to last, got built at low cost, were built on time, and then made history through the years. Let's see, what made the Forum in Montreal a shrine? Doers building things to last, seeing those things they built thrive and make history of their own, and sprinkling in fits and starts of innovation and continuous improvement. Those ingredients I will make a connection to, to a topic that serves as the deep dive theme for this episode of The Far Middle. It's a topic many a constant listener the past few weeks have asked about doing an episode on, because in early November, just about three weeks ago, the domestic energy company that I work for, CNX Resources, announced a partnership that we created with the state of Pennsylvania under the leadership of Governor Shapiro. Now, this agreement sets a new frankly historic set of standards for how the domestic natural gas industry operates and interacts with local and regional stakeholders in places like Western Pennsylvania, all of Pennsylvania, and frankly, within all of Appalachia. We call it radical transparency. Now imagine that, your Keller inside the lines and definitely not radical host being part of something radical. Besides being historic, this partnership and agreement is gonna move the state of the art forward to a higher and better place when it comes to how responsible manufacturing of domestic energy and natural gas is performed. And this isn't going to be easy, and it's going to be challenging, yet it will improve what we do, and it will benefit many stakeholders like residents and workers and investors and communities substantially. So let's dive deep into what radical transparency is, what it means, how it works, and how we got there. If we start our connections of this journey back to the beginning, much of the impetus for radical transparency, it actually started with a problem, a very annoying one and a serious one for a team like the one at CNX Resources who prides itself on the values of ownership and excellence and responsibility, those being our, our core values, and an issue that needed to be taken seriously for a public company in the domestic energy space such as CNX. Domestic energy companies, they operate under a duty and responsibility to report a tremendous volume of data to regulators. It could be emissions, could be for permits, labor, financial, all of those different arenas. But in the area of emissions reporting, it is a particularly voluminous effort. Processes need to be constructed to manage all that reporting, spanning from the field of operations to the final report that's sent to the state or federal regulatory body. And like all processes that involve human interaction and communication and decision-making, disconnects can occur and propagate over time, especially if we're talking high-volume efforts, like that being the case with emissions reporting in the energy space. And that very problem popped up for us several years ago. We had a glitch in our reporting processes that failed to record a maintenance event on our pipelines that was performed regularly from making its way into being logged into our state emissions reports. And the regulatory bodies wanted us to check a year's worth of data for the miss. We decided to audit four years back to be complete. And lo and behold, much to our distress, 
we missed 2,300 of these maintenance events in the four-year period. Now, that's a big number by itself. And we reported the misses, we updated the history, and we corrected all the prior filings. And we also owned up to it publicly with the legal process that ensued in Pennsylvania. It was on us, pure and simple. Now, some connections to make to that issue or problem that we had. First, context matters. Now, as I said, 2,300 misses, that ain't good. No disputing that. But a couple of other facts put it in perspective. First, over that four-year period that applied to the 2,300 misses, we reported over 14 million events and data points. Now, that's hard to fathom, but it's true. And when you do the math, 2,300 misses out of 14 million works out to a miss rate, let's call it, of 0.016%. I can't think of many, if any, human influence processes that will perform a function 14 million times and do better than a miss rate of 0.016%. But second, you know, the expectation for us, the standard, so to speak, is zero misses and a 0% miss rate. 2,300 misses is not zero misses. Third point, um, these data points and events, they're reported to calculate emissions from a site and to see if those emissions exceed things like permit levels. Now, that's an important uh, topic, of course, because of the conservatism that we applied when calculating the emissions. When we ran through the audit and did all the adjustments to the positives and to the negatives, we found that all those adjustments netted to actually over-reporting implied emissions. So there was not an under-reporting or exceeding of permit levels when it came to emissions, which was great. All this history leads to the second connection that I want to make to this data reporting challenge, which is it led to a new standard for us within CNX Resources when it came to regulatory reporting. So again, 2,300 misses, that's too many, whether it's out of 14 million or 14 billion activities or data points. So we stacked hands as a team to find a better process a better way to track and report activities that require regulatory reporting. And that led to building and investing in new teams like our regulatory reporting group that we now have within the company. And it led to building and investing in new data and IT platforms to track and report and improve data custody and accuracy. And it led to building and investing in a new standard, a new normal, so to speak, where we apply the same rigor and protections we apply in financial reporting as a public company to regulatory reporting for emissions data. Basically, once we learned of the problem and assessed it and corrected it and looked back, we said we will do better. The problem catalyzed a new level of performance and innovation, so to speak. And we see that often, don't we, in business and competitive endeavors and history, a challenge or problem driving performance to a better level in place. It was the same situation for us We stumbled upon an issue and a problem that we should have been on top of. And as we were correcting it, we pivoted to using it as an opportunity to make us better. And if you want to embody our values that I mentioned earlier of ownership and excellence and responsibility, that's what you do. It's how we win our way, so to speak. Well, once we built this new regulatory reporting effort, which, by the way, took a year and a half in significant investment, we became even more confident in our data which put us in a position to start thinking about the next thing, how to use that newfound confidence and accuracy to advance the ball yet again. And a couple of things came together that created a window of opportunity. The first we discussed on this podcast two months ago, back in episode 124, I believe, 
when we took a deep dive into the ridiculously flawed and bungled statistical analysis, and I use that term loosely, by the University of Pittsburgh on health issues and natural gas development. So go back and give episode 124 a listen. It's a fascinating sort of topic to see such abuse and ineptitude be applied by academia and then sort of abused by media as they attempt to commandeer policy and impressions. But the bottom line issue there was this is what happens when one deals with the mysterious and the unknown and playing on fears of the dark. It creates stress that leads to poor policy trying to protect against a boogeyman. There is a better way, of course, and that's to transparently report accurate data and real-time data from sites where natural gas activity is occurring. The known basically replaces the unknown. The measurement in the field replaces the professor speculating, one, by the way, who never bothered to even visit a natural gas site during the study that he is opining on. The objective actual replacing the biased inferred. So the opportunity or the need was there, and we had the confidence in our data processes to seize the opportunity and to address the need. But we also needed leadership from state government, and that's where Governor Shapiro came into play. He's looking for a way to balance economic growth and environmental responsibility. And he's not the first politician or governor to say that, but he is the first to see the opportunity that radical transparency would create for doing so. He wants to get things done that are tangible and that lead. For Pennsylvania and beyond when it comes to energy and economy and emissions and residents' quality of life. When he heard what radical transparency would entail, he became interested and threw the element of the state regulatory bodies and resources into the effort. That's when radical transparency went from concept within CNX resources to a reality in Pennsylvania today. And while we're on this topic, this connects to a common remark that many have hit me with. But Governor Shapiro, he's a Democrat. Well, I've said it many times. I'm not into politics, but I am really into policy. And I support her vote not by rigid party affiliation. Because again, if anything, I'm a libertarian. I'm socially and individual rights-wise a classic liberal and fiscally and government-size-wise a classic conservative. No, but instead, I vote and support those backing good policy, period. If I see a chance to jump from policy that is based on innuendo in the unknown and some rigid out-of-touch ideology to instead policy that is based on data and the rational and the known, I'm all in. Democrat, Republican, independent, conservative, liberal, anyone I'll work with, except, of course, for a leftist. Well, Governor Shapiro, again, he wanted to lead on this issue to get a sound policy in place when it came to energy development and the environment. And that's what he did when he unveiled our initiative of radical transparency on November 2nd. So let's make our next connection to what unfolded that day. We gathered in Washington County, close to the border of Greene County, on an active production pad, I might add. Seven wells there producing nearly 150 million cubic feet per day, over 10 miles of cumulative lateral length. And that production level of 150 million cubic feet a day, by the way, is an amazing perspective when it comes to energy density advantages of natural gas. In one week, the production of natural gas from that pad will be enough to power over 20,000 homes for an entire year. And consider that the wells will be producing for decades, albeit at somewhat lower levels, you begin to appreciate the massive energy density advantage of natural gas as an energy source versus things like wind and solar. A pad taking up a few acres of surface 
with natural gas development would only be replicated on an energy deliverability basis by hundreds and probably thousands of acres neutered by wind or solar. I said it many times, constant listeners, wind and solar, they can't compete with nuclear or natural gas in energy reliability or with respect to energy density. Anyway, we talked about you know who we were. CNX Resources has been in this region for just one year shy of 160 years. It's the oldest public company in Western Pennsylvania. A guy by the name of Abraham Lincoln was in the White House when we got our start, which is pretty amazing. And there's two things to know about CNX Resources over that time that do a great job of explaining why we ended up on that location on November 2nd with the governor. First, you know, we, the natural gas industry or CNX Resources, we are the community and the community is us. And you simply cannot separate the natural gas industry and the community in places like Pennsylvania. It's effectively the same DNA. And at CNX, we've got an intense commitment and love for this region. I think as a constant listener, you know that by now. And I mentioned the 160 years history. Our team, by the way, doesn't just have that history, but our team lives in these very communities where we operate. And our kids breathe the air, and our parents drink the water, and our homes are here, and the vast majority of us, we intend to stay here for the duration. So if there's a way to advance the ball when it comes to the natural gas industry and Pennsylvania and the quality of life of all the residents in the state, you can be 100% certain that CNX Resources, we're going to want to dive headfirst into that opportunity. And then the second thing to know about CNX, we've got a proud legacy of pioneering the next thing, innovating to a better place. And that's a very proud legacy over decades and decades of history. So we did it back in the day with coal bed methane capture and continue as pioneers in that arena. We achieved it numerous times over the years in the arena of safety. And we did it as part, of course, the shale revolution with the Marcellus not that long ago. And guess what? We're still doing that today um, with sort of pioneering the Utica horizon beneath the Marcellus in Pennsylvania and developing and demonstrating a host of new technologies that will fundamentally change not just Pennsylvania, but also, frankly, the world. So when there's a window to hit the next level of innovation, like the one we just mentioned and we're talking about in this episode, you can be assured that CNX will be first in line. And by the way, that's consistent with how Pennsylvania has led the charge on innovation and manufacturing and energy through the years. Again, it's that common DNA that we share with the region and vice versa. And lo and behold, we have another opportunity to innovate and advance the industry and our communities that are tied to this awesome endeavor that is natural gas manufacturing. And that is where radical transparency comes into play. So what does radical transparency mean? What is it specifically about? Well, we're going to monitor air and water and waste and methane in and around our operations. And we're going to open source this data for all to see real time. And the state, through the Department of Environmental Protection, is also going to share custody of this data to provide further transparency and confidence to the public and its reliability. So when you think this through, I don't know how we couldn't be part of this. So in place of endless speculation and all that dueling rhetoric, you get to change the paradigm by open sourcing facts and data for all stakeholders to see and create a mutual trust, which can serve as the basis for cooperation and real environmental and economic progress in places like Pennsylvania and Appalachia. And that unprecedented brand of transparency, the best way I can describe it is as good. Good for residents' health, 
good for the industry worker, good for economic development, good for energy security, good for the environment, and good for community investment. I think you get the picture. But the ultimate success of radical transparency will be set by seeing it becoming the norm and the standard. So we are lobbying and we are encouraging other players, peers in the industry to join us and to help us and, of course, to improve upon this. I'm sure there's got many improvements and refinements to go before we reach its final sort of point. And we're asking the regulators and policymakers, now that they've got data, to basically follow the data of the known and not have to be subservient to the rank speculation and innuendo that derive from the unknown when you're going about setting policy and standards. Make no mistake, this is historic. We're doing something unprecedented with what is currently already a great situation, the lowest life cycle carbon intensive energy source in the world, which is Pennsylvanian and Appalachian natural gas. But now with radical transparency, Pennsylvania is on the cusp of setting the new normal for the Appalachian region and the nation in the world when it comes to responsible energy development. So we're leading, we're making history, and it's exciting, but I got to tell you, it's also sobering. And we're committed to making this a success for all. The best in the world, which is Pennsylvania and Appalachian natural gas, it just got better with radical transparency. And then there's two additional points sort of to make on this effort. First, when you're doing something that effectively is becoming the tip of the spear, it's going to come with both opportunity and also with a responsibility. So we are going to learn a lot with radical transparency and through the effort. It's going to identify unexpected conditions or situations that are going to beg for refinement and improvement. And when we see something unexpected or atypical, we're prepared and we're committed to acting in a way where we engineer and design our way to even better performance. So radical transparency in the data it provides inevitably will make the process of natural gas manufacturing better. It'll be a catalyst for continuous improvement through an endless loop of new issue highlighted, a well-thought-out and clinical response developed, then incremental improvement. Repeat over and over. And then cumulatively, that becomes a step change to a better place. And then the second thing to keep in mind, it's imperative for us with the company and within the industry to be able to use radical transparency to make all that recent rhetoric and speculation and sensational headlines obsolete that we talked about back in episode 124 to definitively confirm for all those stakeholders out there that there are no adverse human health issues related to responsible natural gas development and to confirm what we already know, that the natural gas industry is essential, it's responsible, and it's inherently good for society. I mentioned that the effort is sobering. Indeed, November 2nd was not the end. It was a rollout of the beginning, the start. And now the real work begins. And the true impactfulness, if that is even a word, maybe I just made it up. But you get the point. We are ready and we are pumped and we are focused. And one final connection on the rollout of radical transparency. The event had the following speakers at the podium. The governor, of course, myself representing industry, the head of a state environmental organization, and the president of a local building trades union. Now, that's what you call a coalition of the willing, a coalition of doers wanting to get something done on advancing the state of the art. There are still people in organizations out there who desire to do so, thank God. And yes, there are some in industry who might hate the concept. Their view, I suppose, is no action, no progress, nothing is acceptable because things are perfect. That's nonsense, of course. 
In some radical environmental groups, they went ballistic, and I mean ballistic, because they're all about stopping all progress, creating energy insecurity, and the false cause of protecting the planet or the citizen. Yes, the two extremes, they weren't happy, but this is not a popularity contest. This is about how you make foundational issues of industry and economy and energy and environment and quality of life, how you make all those foundational issues better. If we make those better, but you upset the extreme ends of the spectrum in doing so, so be it. I hope you enjoyed that tour through the concept that is radical transparency. As I said, this is just a start. The real work begins to make it an engine for continuous improvement. So stay tuned, constant listeners. And I want to conclude this episode by making a connection back to the Forum in Montreal and to the greatest band in the history of Canada, Rush, who weren't afraid to break rock norms through the years to innovate, much like what we're trying to do today with radical transparency. Heck, forget Canada. The trio of Rush is the greatest band, pound for pound, in the history of rock. Yeah, even better than Cream, who is often accorded that title. Now, Exit Stage Left, that's the second live album by Rush, released as a double album of awesomeness in late 1981. And after touring in support of their Ace Studio album, Moving Pictures, which is, by the way, clearly one of the top 100 rock albums of all time, the band gathered bunches of recordings made over that tour for the live double album of Exit Stage Left. And the concert album received a mostly positive reception from music critics, reached number 10 in the United States. But those leftist geniuses at Rolling Stone, they only awarded it two stars, which is a rating that didn't age well, to say the least. So what's new with Rolling Stone? Anyway, the album was certified platinum, and Exit Stage Left was voted the ninth best live album of all time by Classic Rock Magazine, and three of the four album sides of this double album concert were recorded in March 1981 at, yes, the Forum in Montreal. Now here's three Rush factoids for you fans of the band and with the album Exit Stage Left. First one, during the production of Exit Stage Left, Rush wrote and recorded Subdivisions, which was a new song that would be released on their following studio album, Signals. And Subdivisions is a top 10 Rush single that perfectly summed up the high school experience for millions of teenagers. Second factoid, the title Exit Stage Left, it comes from the catchphrase of the Hanna-Barbera cartoon character Snagglepuss. So bassist and singer uh, Getty Lee said it best, quote, the whole title came from a character in an American cartoon called Snagglepuss. He's a great little creature, a lion, and every time there's trouble, he flees, uttering exit stage left or exit stage right. But the fact of the matter was that the album cover picture was taken from stage left. And coincidentally, that's the direction in which Snagglepuss runs most of the time, end quote. By the way, Getty Lee, he's on the Mount Rushmore of rock bass players. And then the third and final factoid about Exit Stage Left, an item from each of Rush's previous eight studio album covers can be seen on the front and back cover of Exit Stage Left. Each of them has been modified slightly in some way, but see if you can pick them out uh, when you're looking the next time at the front and back covers of the Exit Stage Left album. I'm going to leave you this week with a verse from Tom Sawyer on that album. No, his mind is not for rent to any god or government. Always hopeful yet discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent, but change is. That's it. Next week, new episode, new month, more change.